2: Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer and David Faber coming to you live from separate locations, uh, even on set as we practice social distancing as a precaution at CNBC. Futures are stable to start the week as the president extends those social distancing guidelines to April 30. j and J's, as you just heard, announcing a lead candidate for a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, Gorski on Squawk Mm -hmm. just now uh, sounding relatively optimistic, Jim, and that does dovetail with news from Novartis and Abbott and Sanofi and Gilead and a lot of Mm -hmm. others this morning.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you started with that call because I think a lot of people were astonished that the futures, uh, just at the moment when the president said, look, we have to extend things. uh, Take away that April 12th deadline. It's going to go all April. At that very moment, we saw the futures start reversing. And I think this is a day, don't know how much more than that, a day where science uh, trumps the pain uh, and the disaster, frankly, that is COVID. Uh, there have been many, many days where we've come in and science has been uh, playing a catch-up game. Today, it sounds like science is actually on target. And listening to Alex Gorsky, I know Alex for a long time there was nothing in his voice that was tentative. It was all like full speed ahead. Now, we also know there's going to be a lot of mayhem between now and when that happens. But I think that there is a sense until today that, you know what, this thing's here to stay. And the idea that everything will ever be back to normal is just fanciful. When you start hearing about vaccines and you start knowing about the companies that are involved, you start thinking, you know what, one day, maybe uh, physical distancing, social distancing, whatever, uh, could become uh, something of the past. So I don't know. We got David back here. He's certainly uh, physical and socially distant from me. (laughs) But I I do think that this is a day where you say, if I'm short, I'm betting against science, not betting against the lackadaisical attitude of many of the people in the country.
3: But, you know, Jim, you're also dealing with a situation none of us have ever actually seen before. Uh, And when it comes to the market, Certainly uh, the sense is that nobody knows anything at this point because we're all trying to understand how quickly the virus will spread and or how quickly a vaccine will be available. Or even more importantly, perhaps in the near term, as we've discussed, how quickly antivirals may be available that would certainly slow or mitigate the effects of the virus and therefore really add a very significant uh, element to our treatment of it uh, or even the antibody test that would give people the sense uh, or let them know whether they have it or not so uncharted territory continues nobody really has a great sense for any of those things i just mentioned jim this morning as you said it, i guess there was a positive response despite what was not great news over the weekend by not, any means no. uh, to
1: maybe it is to i guess science as you say Well, I think that I'm so glad you mentioned the antivirals. There's a lot of lore going around, a lot of uh, urban legend about what works and what doesn't. There's some very definitive work in France that turns out to be not definitive about the hydroxychloroquine. One of the things that has, I think, uh, intercepted the, uh, the notion of where we are is the president's conviction that certain things are working. Uh, we certainly want them. Who wishes that things weren 't as perfect as the President says they are? Then I think the President immediately said I never said it was perfect, but you understand the the notion of wanting to be on wartime footing, the notion of wanting to to have many antivirals working versus the notion of seeing pictures on the beach and the notion of uh, of crowd distancing being something that works in some places and other people seem to ignore it and then the pictures out of a The pictures out of New York, which make you look like pictures out of Wuhan. And then the pictures out of Wuhan are the pictures that you want out of New York. So, Carl, when I I look at things, (laughs) I say, uh, uh, look, I want everything to be good. We're on wartime footing. To criticize a president during wartime is is seditious. At the same time, I I listened to Dr. Fauci. And obviously something happened over the weekend where Dr. Fauci said, look, I want to be optimistic, but I also want to be realistic. And I think the realistic approach is what we have to offer our viewers.
2: Yeah, uh, you were clearly uh, on Twitter annoyed by some of the crowds that you saw on some of the Florida beaches. But but Jim David's exactly right. I mean, if if this uh, if this medical curve goes in tranches and vaccines are the final tranche, what's more important near term? Is it Gilead saying we expect? Remdesivir results in a matter of weeks. Is it about uh, Abbott's five-minute test that can be uh, done small and portable in a hospital? What's in the near term uh, w- important to watch?
1: Not self-serving, but we do have uh, Miles White tonight. on may have money uh, to talk about Abbott. I have felt over and over again that it's testing, testing, and testing, that the way you beat this is to have as many tests going on because what you want to do is want you want to have a plan for the country to come back, but the country can only come back... Uh, if we know who's healthy and who's not, I think that there's a perception that everybody uh, is awaiting getting this. There's also just a, a terrible series of uh, 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 just as there is too much hope being given to many of the antivirals. There's way too much of the of what I would regard as we're all going to get it. I mean, we're all going to put our hands to our face. We're all going to be connected to it. We're, there's no hope to it. Now, I find b- both are just really, really, uh, I'd say, Uh, ill-advised in in terms of what we're trying to do for the people. And, and David, I think that you know that the impact on the economy is far worse than we're making it out to be because there's just too many people who can't pay rent. There's too many mortgages out there. And and we've got a lot of different products that are really predicated on the idea that it's sacrosanct that you pay rent. I, I don't want rent to be conflated with human life, but we're a business channel. We're not a channel which is devoted to... Uh, what a doctor's saying, but there are real issues being c- confronting us in the next few months that would make it so that the recession is a depression. And as long, you know, if we're fighting over the number of ventilators and the spare uh, spare number of ventilators that are somewhere in a, in a warehouse somewhere, we're missing the larger point. And the larger point is: Will society function in a time when no one seems to have to pay anything? You're you're you're
3: absolutely right, Jim. And those are the conversations I know you've been having that I've been having as well um, over the course of the weekend and certainly uh, during the during the workday, so to speak, that we have one these days. Um, The concern amongst people who run businesses is how they're going to pay the rent. And in fact, many are choosing not to. Uh, It is also turned to restructuring. You talk to people in private equity, for example, where there are obviously is a portfolio of companies that oftentimes uh, sort of is the width and breadth of the U.S. economy. And you get a pretty good sense that there are a lot of problem areas and those that aren't necessarily right now are expected to be. And that's what's going on. Everybody's trying to understand how bad is it going to be for how long? What are my cash flows really going to look like? And what do I need to do in terms of cutting back? my spending to be able to survive. So that's obviously not even the small businesses, which you know, are just at this point getting crushed um, around the country,
1: given most of them, many of them are not open. Right. The base of the country and the 85 percent, that small, medium sized business uh, for the most part is just closed. Uh, And what does that mean for stocks? I mean, you come in I think we all talk to a lot of people uh, whom we regard as being pretty thorough about stocks. And uh, there's a disconnect between what stocks are doing and what people expect the economy to do. Now, why is that? Because stocks have long since divorced themselves from the actual economy, if only because they're big international companies. I mean, I, I look at or they're involved with health care or involved with staples. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going through over and over again the technology stocks. Do I really care what they're building here? Well, they tend not to be here. They're in China. When I look at the, at the uh, actual, the ventilator business, when I look at the gown business, we've long since outsourced these. These are not American businesses. We had 900,000 seamstresses in this country in 1990. Now we have zero. So are we making gowns here? No. Can the Army Corps of Engineers do a great job? Yeah, I've heard them do great things. But for the most part, we're a, a service economy, and the service economy for lack of a better term, is just shut down.
2: Uh, Jim, it does bring us to sort of um, the week that we've got ahead of us. Uh, We're going to get more data, uh, which we know will likely be bad. We'll get these end of month, uh, end of quarter flows. We've got competing calls tactically from the likes of Goldman, which says don't trust last week's rally versus Morgan Stanley, which says forced liquidation is behind us. And we stick with the view that the worst is behind us if you have a six to 12 month horizon. So, I mean, where's your head over the next uh, couple of weeks, at least?
1: Well, look, I think it, it, the great question, because I look at the companies that are involved. Let's take social media because social media is part of fact. It's very clear that engagement is way up. And that's great. It's also very clear that advertising is way down, and that's bad. Uh, we have a lot of things that are really like that. The fueling of the economy, whether it be for entertainment, whether it be for uh, for online, uh, whether it be for autos, they require demand. Yeah. And, and demand, when you're trying to, you're trying to either put food on the table or you're trying to buy a car. And I've got to tell you, the car will not win in that equation. You're trying to figure out whether you have a job or whether you're going to be able to uh, buy at raw stores, which was upgraded today. And I think that one day you'll be able to buy at raw stores. But in the interim, you got to try to figure out whether you pay rent or do you skip rent and hope that nobody catches you. So I what I, I think we're at, at a moment where it's a free-for-all. And in a free-for-all, it's a tough environment to you know, take a big swing at General Motors.
2: Yeah. Uh, it does remind me, uh, we've got other upgrades to watch as well, which we'll get to with Jim, including Ulta, uh, Procter and some others. When we come back after the break, though, the president and CEO of Cigna, David Cordani, is going to join us on this Monday morning. So don't go anywhere.
4: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. a leading global asset manager.
3: Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Let's get over now to Bertha Coombs, who joins us with a special guest. He is Cigna's CEO, David Cordani. Bertha.
5: Thanks very much, David. Cigna was the first insurer to move to say it was going to cover all of the costs on COVID testing. Now it has joined with Humana to say it's also going to be covering first dollar costs for all of the treatments for coronavirus patients, not just hospitalizations, but also future medications, future vaccines. And they'll do that both in network and out of network. David Cordani joins me now to talk about that decision. David, how did you come to this decision and what were some of the considerations that that you took in?
6: Good morning, Bertha. Um, as you know, we're, we're a global health service company and in a time of crisis, which is what we confront right now, we're challenging ourselves to step forward and help our customers, help our patients and provide them peace of mind. I appreciate your reference to the testing. We also leaned in with expanded telemed uh, resources, 90-day uh, delivery of medication. Um, in our announcement this morning, we also acknowledge that we're redeploying hundreds of doctors and nurses to support um, outside um, third-party telemedic resources. So we're challenging ourselves to step in and help our customers. And in this case, as we step back and see as individuals are fighting the health challenge, we wanted to take the financial burden off their docket. So it's a simple decision complex, but when you boil it down, it's putting the customer-patient front and center and trying to provide them peace of mind, which is what we did with our action.
5: It's a complex decision. S&P Global Analysts estimated that in a severe pandemic that the medical costs for insurers could be near $100 billion. So as you take on this responsibility and some of your peers will likely follow. How are you going to be able to handle that?
6: Well, um, again, we acknowledge we're in an unprecedented time, so let's step back and understand what we're, uh, what we're saying here. An individual has an out-of-pocket financial responsibility is tied to their insurance, whether it's commercial insurance, individual exchange insurance, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid. We're saying that we're gonna take that individual responsibility on ourselves. Um, backing that is a large additional responsibility that either in words to the government in the case of Medicare Advantage or Medicaid or the um, corporate employer, which remains. So we're taking the portion for a COVID patient's um, um, treatment, and we're taking that financial obligation on. As a large diversified financial um, service company and health service company, we believe we're well positioned to be able to do so. Um, And we're going to track this over the next several months um, as we serve our customers and patients. But stepping back fundamentally, we think it's the right thing to do because as individuals are um, in hospital situations dealing with the treatment, we wanted to take this burden off uh, their lap and off their family's lap and provide them the peace of mind they deserve. David, thank you so much, Jim. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Um, Hey, Jim, good to hear your voice.
1: Always good to hear you. Thank you for coming on, man, buddy, a bunch of times, too. I'm trying to figure out the priorities, and maybe it's multi-pronged, but... What would help you the most, a, a five minute Abbott test that would tell you uh, what your uh, what some of the lives that you back are are seeing or something about more personal protective equipment? Because it does seem that you go through it very quickly. And that has uh, hurt the process in hospitals. I know that it's difficult to balance these, but I do feel like testing, testing, testing would really help Cigna.
6: Yeah, um, Jim, maybe I'll boil it down into three. And I appreciate your question. Um, we've been working every other day. There's a group of CEO leaders who come together crossing hospital, lab, home health care, skilled nursing facility, uh, pharmacy services, our sector, et cetera, um, to ask those very questions, and and you hit on um, two of the three. So one is PPE. We need to have um, within our country the ability to get the PPE or the personal protection equipment to the right place at the right time um, and the way in which the country is um, rising up to that is is quite inspiring, although there are hot spots and additional acceleration that's necessary, both in the production and distribution. Second, then, is testing. Um, the accelerated testing, there's a hierarchy. Um, inpatient first, uh, medical professionals and first responders second, individuals who are high-risk third, and then others fourth from that standpoint. And then third is what we've all become accustomed to talking about now is social distancing, reducing the risk of onset. So taking on the responsibility to reduce the risk of onset, which all Americans have that responsibility. Um, We've learned now washing our hands for 20 seconds is really important. And we've learned social distancing is very important. So if you take those three items while the medical system um, is working feverishly both to triage those who are ill as well as to evolve both therapies and then ultimately vaccines. That's what we need, those three items plus the medical system doing its its work. Would a, the number three item, social distancing, would that benefit
1: from either a national lockdown or a national travel ban?
6: Um, that, that's not my call. Um, I think you see the, um, the country going through different phases of it. First and foremost, um, I'm proud to see what corporate America did Corporate America stepped in and aggressively moved to supporting individuals to to work at home. For example, um, we have probably an excess of 90% of all of our colleagues in a work-at-home situation. From that standpoint, because of the nature of our business, some people need to be in the work setting. Um, We've limited that. We've facilitated social distancing from that standpoint. We provide additional pay for those who have to be at work, whether it's tied to um, care delivery, pharmacy service delivery, etc., we also um, offered an additional 10 days of emergency PTO because we know individuals are trying to balance work, life, um, caregiver, the sandwich generation, et cetera. So I think, number one, corporations are stepping in quite aggressively. And then secondly, the government has to deal with this from a local to national and national to local basis. Um, we're not a one-size-fits-all country, and I think we're seeing in this case it's not a one-size-fits-all solution, but the intensity is ramping up. I think that more um, more political leaders are finding that uh, more aggressive posture relative to social distancing is probably in society's best interest over the near term.
3: David, it's David Faber. Um, What is your sense right now in terms of the financial health of our nation's hospitals? I would assume they'll benefit from the fact that you're going to be covering uh, all the costs related to some of their patients or the patients who have your insurance. But uh, what are you hearing and how's this industry going to look once this virus passes?
6: Yeah, there's strain to every um, every business, um, there's no doubt about it. Um, I was listening to Jim's comments just before I came on. So th- the strain is acute. As you deal with the hospital and the care delivery part of the equation, obviously we're seeing in the country um, those elective procedures or those deferrable procedures are being asked to be deferred um, by hospital leaders, by policy leaders, and otherwise. So that's an extraction of, of revenue. Um, from that standpoint, conversely, there's an onset of certain services that are being consumed. You're correct. The, the action we took, we're doing our part by essentially saying to hospitals, um, don't worry about that part of the reimbursement. Don't worry about that part of the collection process. Don't worry about bad debt that's attached to that. We want to support you from that standpoint. And then, um, David, as you saw with the stimulus bill, there's dollars being allocated right. um, toward our healthcare delivery system from that standpoint. So, Um, I think we're going to see, in most cases, the strongest of the strong will be there. Um, The strong players will provide support uh, for their brother and sister locations around the country. And some of the hospitals that may be in a little weaker financial state might find themselves in a state of disarray more rapidly. And elected officials need to be prepared to step in um, quickly to provide the financial backing that they need.
2: Hey, David, it's Carl. Uh, I thought your your answer on testing priorities was interesting because do you think the debate is going to come down to when we get high speed testing at scale and antibody testing at scale? Uh, do you test high risk individuals first uh, because of their vulnerability, like you said, or do we test low risk individuals first because they're the ones who are most able to get back to work?
6: I think when the testing capacity expands, we're going to see in our country um, testing consumed at a higher rate across the board. My comment, Carl, was relative to the present time. So let's take an example of why I referenced what I did. Um, Working with hospital partners, we were able to see that um, the priority is to get non-COVID patients out of the hospital, if possible, into long-term care, skilled nursing facilities, or home. So our industry worked with hospitals to accelerate those transitions, but we needed to make sure that individuals were COVID negative. So therefore the prioritization of in, in hospital, um, individuals consuming first. To your point, as the um, rate and scope of testing expands, and it is companies like Quest, LabCorp and others are ramping at quantum pace. And to your notion, there's additional t- testing in terms of speed or type of tests that expand. I think we'll see societally more consumption of the testing to help us identify individuals um, at risk or people who may be asymptomatic and carriers from that standpoint. That's the next chapter to come. My comment was more relative to the present state we're dealing with right now.
5: David, one of the things that you've talked a lot about over the last couple of years is really whole health and mental health help. You've expanded telehealth access to mental health. Are you seeing people access this in this time when people may not be sick, but they're certainly feeling the stress?
6: Bertha, I appreciate the question. Simple answer is yes. Um, You you recall that we fielded um, the the largest study of its kind um, some time ago relative to loneliness, and we're able to determine that um, in the United States, we have an elevated level of loneliness. The, The social distancing runs the risk of perpetuating that yet further Um, So the ability to have um, mental health or whole person health services um, brought to bear and more easily accessible, including tele, is mission critical from that standpoint. Secondly, having mental health or whole person health services that are merged in with chronic care management, acute care management, et cetera, is mission critical because we see the two cohabitating. For example, if an individual has a chronic disease, about half of all Americans do, they're seven times more likely to be clinically depressed. If that clinical depression goes untreated, there's a multiplier effect on their health issue and health challenges from that standpoint. We're trying to acknowledge that, understand that and step in. And to your point, um, telehealth is an example of expanding the access and services for the benefit of individuals.
3: David, um What about Cigna itself? To say this is an uncertain time is an understatement. But given that, a lot of the CEOs I speak to certainly are trying to figure out ways to pull back, uh, to cut expenses. Are you doing
6: that as well? And if so, where? So we agree it's an unprecedented time. Um, Stepping into 2020, we're carrying some meaningful momentum as a corporation. First, growth momentum. Um, outstanding client and customer retention around the world, um, expansion of relationship and new business ads um, to the corporation from that standpoint. Um, but but to the macro statement you make, um, there's no way a, a corporation could step back in the current environment and say, given everything I know today, what I thought I was going to execute in 2020, I'm gonna be able to execute it exactly the same. So it presses the dynam- dynamism of a corporation uh, pretty aggressively. We are not arbitrarily pulling back on expenses. In fact, I made a reference of where we're spending more um, for our colleagues who need to be in the work setting, um, in the provision of care or the supply of pharmacy resources from that standpoint. But we are and will dynamically reprioritize where and how we're investing. For example, we have a very large R&D discretionary investment pool in our corporation um, that we execute every year. We have a venture fund within our company that we execute um, within each and every year, those investments would would have a higher hurdle rate right now um, to be deployed simply because of the uh, uh, unstable environment that, that stands in front of us. So at a macro level, of course, we're revisiting, but there's not an across-the-board cut because our 170 million customer relationships around the world um, obviously still need to be served, and we're growing in those relationships, and we need to be in position to serve them.
1: David, Jim, one thing I'm trying to understand, you're an international company. Why are things less dire in Germany, very dire in Italy and catastrophic in Spain?
6: Uh, Jim, I don't think I'm um, the right person to give you a pinpointed answer. Um, I think if we step back and look at a few points of similarity, let's take South Korea and Italy as an example, um, two ends of the spectrum. Um what what South Korea proved is a couple of things. One, South Korea has um, um, a population that is older on average. Italy is even older. So data point one, we know COVID nineteen affects an older population more acutely. Point two, it seems to affect older males a bit more acutely than older females. Italy's population not only skews older but skews older male. Three, um, it attacks smokers a bit more aggressively and while South Korea has a somewhat elevated smoking percentage, Italy has even a higher smoking percentage. So so you take that as a population measure. Second piece, it's clear South Korea was extremely aggressive and constructive relative to what we know today as social distancing and testing. If you look at Italy, they were less aggressive relative to social distancing, even after the country put forth certain mandates, and less comprehensive relative to testing. So I take two cohorts. One, the data around the profile of the people, age, age and sex mix, smoking. There's higher risk across the board, in in this case, Italy. And then secondly, how aggressive one was with social distancing and how aggressive one was with testing to inform that social distancing and inform the triaging. Those seem to be playing out as we look at the comparison to um, Spain versus Germany. That pattern seems to be playing out pretty consistently.
2: David, thank you for your time so much. A lot of good information, a lot to absorb. Uh, David Cordani of Cigna and our Bertha thank, you with you. Uh, Bertha, thank you very much for bringing that to us. Let's get to the opening bells here, guys, as we uh, await uh, the first ring of the week at the New York Stock Exchange. It'll be James Catsarellis, director of facilities and building operations at the NASDAQ, the familiar shot of the tower in Times Square. Jim, I thought that was fascinating, That that last question of yours about, just the myriad uh, number of variables that go into each country's experience uh, that we've seen so far, demographics, the mix that you have with the elderly, smoking,
1: pollution, you name it. I thought that was great. I mean, I think a lot of us are trying to just figure out what the heck, I mean, is the Italian medical system bad? What's going on in Spain? I mean, there really is. You get the sense that they, uh, for lack of a better term, they didn't take it seriously. Uh, and their lungs, which is uh, the epicenter of this illness, were compromised. And, and, look, I have a place in Italy and go to Italy quite a bit. And uh, one thing you're always astonished is you're the only person who's not smoking. Uh, and, and just everywhere you go. And so and you, you, there is a skewed male, which I hadn't thought of. I mean, I know David was quick to say I don't really know. But there he, he just gave me answers I haven't heard. And I'm delighted to at least understand. And the only time I'm trying to figure it out is, wow, when is it coming here in that wave? I mean, maybe we are more serious in Italy. I feel terrible that the Italians just didn't figure it out. Uh, Very important learning from David Cordani.
2: Yeah. Uh, Guys, as uh, we were talking to Cordani, the president um, uh, on the airwaves, uh, Reuters here saying that the president says he plans to speak with Putin today. Uh, Jim, uh, and that Saudi Arabia and Russia, quote, both went crazy over oil prices. Of course, we know crude did become a teenager uh, briefly overnight at 1992.
1: The uh, futures, the S and P futures, trade directly with oil. Now, one of the problems with oil is is that we're not using it. The roads are empty. Uh, The the tanks were all filled up. It's natural to believe that even if we're still producing 13 million in this country, that no matter what they do in Saudi Arabia and uh, in, in Russia, they can't seem to stop the Permian. And because of that, there are a lot of dire predictions that oil could go down to 15, 10, unless the Saudis and Russians let up. And I think it's the Saudis, obviously, that need to let up. The Russians... Uh, Maybe the president has a good relationship with Putin, but they've never demonstrated to be anything other than our enemy when it comes to anything economic. So if you want to know about how the S&P futures are going to do, then watch the talks with the president, because uh, in an odd position for the president, he wants oil to go higher. Uh, It's simply because no one's driving anyway. So what's the harm?
3: Yeah. I mean, but, Jim, you've been calling for him to, to call up uh, Saudi Arabia for weeks now. It hasn't happened. No, not Very at all. much unclear anything comes out of a conversation with Putin, one would expect. Uh, you've talked about 20 bucks as being a key level uh, as we watch it hovering 25 cents right. above that. There are a number of people. Well, listen, you can always find people in any market who think this it's, the commodity is going to go down. And that's certainly the case here. There are concerns given the demand picture, given the continued Um, strategies from the Saudis and the Russians, that we're going to see this become a
1: teenager uh, and consistently so. Yes. I mean, who wants it? Where do we put it? We we keep pumping. It's not like we can radically curtail our pumping. Uh, There's no real demand anywhere. Uh, So it's certainly realistic to think that this is just a classic case of supply and demand where uh, the refiners are, are caught with a lot. Uh, we have tankers everywhere where there are people who are betting that, wait wait a second, maybe uh, there'll be a quick jump in oil. I don't see that. Uh, it's, it's the most perplexing market because... Uh, The U.S. companies don't cut back. It's just not what they do. And I think that the Scott Sheffield interview uh, last week with Brian Sullivan was really incredible because he's talking about a tremendous consolidation based on the idea that a lot of oil companies just won't make it. We're seeing retailers where we hear they won't make it. We see oil companies where they won't make it. And then we see the stock market doing well. And there's a curious disconnect, but maybe the answer is is that there are a lot of companies that in the S&P that are truly service-oriented companies, yeah. and maybe the services aren't going to take a hit, even if oil goes much lower, which obviously could actually be good for them. Although,
3: Carl, I mean, it's always important to point out, not that we don't know it, but maybe we don't mention it enough, it's not just our economy that's more or less moribund right now. I mean, India, uh, the U.K., Spain, France... Germany, Italy, the list goes on and on here of major economies in this world that are more or less shuttered at this point.
2: Uh, it's, it's one of the things that I mean, there's so much to absorb domestically, David, that uh, you forget that the mass migration that's going on in India right now and the public health implications of uh, that kind of migration are mind, it would be mind boggling on a in a regular world. Uh, We would be paying a lot of attention to it, but there's just too much at home to deal with. Uh, Guys, Phil uh, LeBeau uh, points out on Twitter this morning that there's not a single vehicle final assembly plant in the U.S. that is running this morning. Uh, So when we talk about oil, we know what's happening to jet fuel demand. We know what's happening to gasoline consumption. And now we're having to see uh, these OEMs respond to what's going to be obviously, Jim, as you suggested, some bloated dealer inventories.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, think about that. And think about all these towns where they have their factories and think about the small businesses. And there's just no, uh, there's no work, then there's no demand. And you see, you see the domino effect. Uh, I think that the industrial manufacturing, you know, look, our manufacturing sector has devolved into something that's really more of an assembling business. That's one of the reasons why I think it's hard for GM to just go make ventilators. I mean, They're not in the business of making equipment necessarily that would be similar to that uh, versus, say, making a tank in World War Two or an aircraft in World War uh, Two, which GM was was heavily involved in. But I just say, look, this is the shutdown of the real economy. And there is a curious disconnect. I, I deal with a lot of short sellers. I do a lot of long owners, too. I mean, and they're all the short sellers are like, what are you doing? What are you dreaming? Why are you taking up these companies? And then you look at the companies and they may not be the companies that are being hurt. But somewhere down the line, if the uh, if Mnuchin's plan uh, to put two trillion in the market uh, is not enough, then you will see another leg down. I mean, this is a band aid. I think it's an appropriate Band-Aid, I think it's a good Band-Aid, but I don't know how long uh, we can just hope that things will get better for Royal Caribbean. The President yesterday said, listen, the cruise lines, they're a great industry. Well, yeah, but where's the demand for the Holland American line? Uh, David, I know that you're not necessarily a cruise taker, but let's just take a look at uh, the idea of the perhaps the one place on Earth that, is there another place on Earth, David, that you would prefer not to be (laughs) than on a a cruise line? in the 18th floor. Hey, please tell me.
3: Uh, it, it's certainly not an ideal uh, environment for me to imagine. I, would, I will grant you that as I look. Oh, I can look at you. Right. Yeah. We can't capture the shot, I don't think, because we're too far away from each other. Right. But I, when I turn, I'm looking <laughs> at you. We're pointing at each other.
1: Oh, there I am. Now, David, um, remember, you have to pay for this. They're not paying you. Yeah. Okay, that's one point, right? right. And second, when you read about the ones that are still in the, in the seas, yeah. don't you find it's rather amazing, as I look at you, and we're practicing physical distancing, social, that there's still people, there's still boats on the seas. <laughs> it, it, it is. You know,
3: Jim, listen, it also puts you in mind, and Carl, of how behaviors are going to change even when we do get through this. Right. How quickly... Until we get a vaccine, I guess, are people going to really go back to restaurants? Are people going to be willing to go to sporting events and other venues? You know, I don't know the answer. We don't know the answer. No, we But don't. one would imagine it's not necessarily just all going to come back immediately.
1: Yeah, I mean, I keep thinking about the high need- five. I mean, I always, get, I always do a fist pump <laughs> with David in the morning. I, I can't imagine something exactly more horrible than that right now. <laughs> just an unbridled touch. Of someone who, for all I know, were at the subway this morning.
3: Yeah, it's true. I'm looking I, I forward to the say, NBA coming say, guys, back and then not doing it anymore around the foul line. That'll save some time. That's endless. Yeah. We're, defi- we're
2: definitely going to need a larger telestrator, a, a giant telestrator <laughs> at the other end of this so you guys can stand together. Carl, we got room um, for you. You're just joining us the other <laughs> end.
3: We got room for you down there, Carl. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, If our viewers are just joining us this morning, one of the more uh, encouraging uh, interviews of the day was Alex Gorsky of J&J as they announced their lead candidate for a COVID-19 vaccine, which they think could start seeing human clinical trials in September at the latest. Take a listen.
6: We expect to begin first in human testing in September. But in parallel, as you know, not only do you need a a safe and effective vaccine, but you also need to have one that can be produced in very large volumes. We're going to be doing that at risk simultaneously right here in the United States. And uh, and we expect to have results, interim results, at least from our trials, likely in December at the latest early January, that should put us in a position early in 2021 to literally have hundreds of millions of doses available. And then by the end of the year, up to a billion. Look, just
1: total hope for uh, there. Jim. Right? Just total hope, Carl. No, I mean, I mean
6: but... I'm sorry.
2: I, I, I understand that, but um, I mean, you got to imagine Gorski has... Is- chosen his language in advance, very carefully. And when he says high degree of probability of being successful, uh, why would you walk into that without some kind of uh, data to back you up, at least uh, in the in background?
1: Uh, yeah, it, It's such a great question. When uh, all of this started, I canvassed the drug companies to see who was in a position to do respiratory, who was in a position to have something a- about this. And almost all of them said the same thing to me, which is that, you know what, we're kind of, Uh, Caught with their pants down on this. We don't really have anything. And then now, when you deal with Roche, well, they're trying some things. Now, they're trying older drugs off the shelf. That tends to not really work. Uh, when you talk about the vaccines, which are so important because Dr. Fauci keeps saying over and over again, this thing is coming back uh, to know that they're this far ahead on their vaccine and Regeneron's ahead on a vaccine. What it says to me is, is that while we do have some tough times ahead, there's there's light at the end of the tunnel uh, uh, and the light at the end of the tunnel is from very, you know, really big companies who don't have to say anything. Yeah, David. These companies are. These companies can just shut up. They don't have to go on air and say, "Listen, we may have something." No one would criticize them for being quiet. No,
3: no. But it is right. It is good to hear from them. Certainly when they have something to offer, at least. And you know, he's a serious guy, Gorski. He's not oh, just yeah. coming on in some way to tout something. He uh, they obviously really believe that they're going to be in a position to deliver something efficacious. Uh, it's still months and months away, though, Jim. Um, you know, guys, uh, before we sort of get to the broader market, and Bob, I mean, we're up, what, 0.6% on the S&P. Jim, I noticed Google shares were down. There was an upgrade today. But, right. you know, my old media focus, a lot of those stocks down again, Discovery and Viacom, Fox and, and, and Disney all down rather sharply, even though ratings are very strong. The concerns, well, are varied, but certainly about advertising. But what about Google and Facebook? What about small and medium-sized businesses that advertise on Google? Google Aren't aren't we supposed to expect that they're not going to be spending
1: a lot of money for a while? Well, I think that's right. That's why I think that you've gotten mixed emotions on what people are saying about Google today. Uh, I I do think that that Google is... not going to make the numbers when it comes to enterprise spend. Uh, I think that Facebook's not going to make the numbers when it comes to small and medium-sized bids uh, uh, spend. Uh, there's just there's a lot of engagement, but there's also a, a big cutback in, in advertising. Why not? It, it's so easy to cut back. It's one of those things that you know uh, the big companies say, you know what, that's – that we can hold back on. That's that's not really important. And then you've always got these other government companies to say, this is when we really got to make a statement. This is when we do it. Well, those companies aren't in evidence yet. And and right now, what we have are are people who are saying, I don't know, I'll hold back. The only outfit that seems to be doing it right is Amazon. And I think once again, all of us are are now used to the, uh, particularly in the suburbs. But you get you get your. Uh, knock on the door, or you get your door, doorbell ring, and then there's the Amazon box, the guy runs away, which is what you want. You want, want the guy at your <laughs> right. door. And then you figure, do you spray the box with yeah. Corax? leave it, or, it out you know, there
3: in the sun. Well, you, you, know, the two day, know. you know, the two-day
1: rule. I know. And, I, know. <laughs> I mean, I bought socks, David. You know I like yeah. to buy my socks and poles, right? Of course, yes. Well, where did I get the gold to- gold toe socks? David, I must have pressed the wrong button. I got about 72 gold socks. And there's a giant <laughs> box, and I was so thrilled, but I knew I couldn't have whatever. Was in it for two days as it baked in the sun, and I'm thinking, where did I, you know, want just get the gloves? But then I say, no, no. that is a box full of COVID. Now, COVID now box. I know
2: God. why I know. my sock order got delayed because Jim's been boarding. Yeah.
1: Well, David and Carl, I mean, <laughs> no. understand that some things there's a priority. I've I've where
3: dived right in. I'm taking enormous risk. I'm
1: opening those boxes. Very quickly. This work. is why I can't fist pump you, David. Yeah, say you again? Ex- yeah. I can't, f- you don't exercise any of the common sense, we all know. Boxes, <laughs> two days. Got my wipe right here. I'm wiping everything. Do you wipe off things you buy? <laughs> you don't go to the supermarket and
3: work. Well, we did. I did recently, yeah. Canned foods, yeah. David. Yeah, a lot of that.
1: Canned foods. A lot of that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the Je- Jeffries Takes Proctor and uh, Kimberly to buy today, Jim, on, what do they call it? Pantry uh, loading. That's their term,
1: yeah, it's back. I know when I spoke to Hormel, they said the center of the supermarket, uh Dave, when you go to a the supermarket, there's this fresh food aisle, okay,, yeah. And there's also this frozen food aisle, and then you get like to the milk section yeah. in the middle is the section that you wouldn't be caught dead in, which is really things that came in cans and right. you know fresh is the day that they were canned uh and, uh and that's what's doing well, yes I mean, spam is selling like it's going out of style now i haven't I had pumpkin spam earlier this year, and I, I actually didn't find it's suboptimal frankly yeah. but you know people uh, they hoard spam it's something that's working hershey's is working uh campbell's soup is working uh but when you buy bread it, it's just not holding up it doesn't withstand the test of time saltines maybe rich crackers rich crackers David, These aren't i'll, I'll go packing. for any of it you any go. of it
3: yeah I'm, i think all of us are eating i don't know about you but very poorly
1: Carl, you, you, understand, you and I, I understand. And no
3: exercise, so it's a really good combination. No exercise? Yeah. Your well, home gym isn't working? I mean, I'm walking, but I can't swim. How can you walk? I'm taking walks. Oh, man. You just... Yeah, you got to go for
1: a walk. You are yeah. a did taker <laughs> um, Yeah. I, didn't <laughs> leave, I did not leave my see. house this weekend. <laughs> that's not a good idea, Jim. You've got to get out. No. Right. Yeah. Right. No. I, yeah.
3: I agree.
2: Talk
1: to me we, after guys, the duration. Guys, we did
2: lose... We did lose about a 250-point pop on the Dow at the open. Let's get to Bob Bassani, see what else is moving. Morning, Bob. Hello,
0: everybody. Uh, happy Monday. Look, uh, the market's opening flattish, given the lousy economic news we're going to get this week. Uh, is Certainly, I think, a victory. I, I think the Abbott 15-minute test, the Johnson & Johnson news, accelerating uh, development of the vaccine, all of that is positive and goes right to the heart of what people need to see for a bottom, which is some progress on combating the coronavirus so all of this is positive and flatish i think is a victory if you look at sectors no surprise here healthcare is leading because of the good news we've got from some of the uh, the healthcare leadership groups there consumer staples doing well uh tech is okay uh, underperforming are banks and retailers maybe not that surprising here if you look at the stuff that's moving in the dow supporting it it's mostly the healthcare stocks so johnson and johnson merck united health uh, Abbott's also having a, a great morning as well, of course, on that uh, announcement there. You see that big move up there for Abbott. Uh, lots of notes over the weekend. A lot of people trying to figure out exactly what's going on uh, and where a bottom might be. I think the important thing uh, is we all agreed on the sort of criteria that we need. Uh, David Coston over at Goldman is as good as anybody else on this. Uh, progress on containing the virus. That's the key thing. And we certainly saw good news today. And I think that's why we're flattish. Uh, evidence of fiscal monetary policy stimulus working, and a bottoming and positioning and flows. What does that mean? Well, it means, how about low, lower volumes of trading activity, lower VIXs, things like that. We're still not quite seeing that. This morning, we so, moved in a 60-point range in the S&P 500. Well, that's better than 100. We were doing 100-point ranges last week, so a little lower here. But let's watch these crazy uh, moves that we've been seeing here in the last few weeks. Uh, lower uh, uh, Goldman itself, and things, so lower in the coming weeks as we... Uh, absorb all the economic data, but they're still up 20% by year-end, 3,000. That's a 20% move from where we are uh, right now. We could see the market swings in the last week, how crazy they are. Remember the the lows last Monday? We were 34% from our highs. Then, all of a sudden, Thursday, we had the enormous rallies, and everybody's saying suddenly we were almost 20% from our lows, and everyone was saying this game may be over, Uh, and we ended with a smack in the face on Friday, reminding us about bear market rallies and things like that. Uh, as people brought out the history books in 2008 and now we're 15% off of the lows. So there is no clear indication from the market about what's going on right now. I think the key thing is to watch the VIX. I have spent a lot of time talking to people about what the VIX is telling us. Uh, The March average on the VIX is 57.8. That's Titanic. A year ago, the average was 14. So we're talking about a 300% increase in the VIX. The daily volatility in the month of March is about 5.5% on the S&P. What does that mean? That implies a VIX of anywhere could be from 80 to 100. That's the actual volatility. If you measure the volatility of the VIX, actually 80 to 100. So these numbers are really elevated. And that's why I point out there's no chance anywhere that the VIX is going to drop much until we see this intraday, the actual volatility, the realized volatility drop. Take a look at the VIX where it is now. It's down a little bit. It was at the open in the low 60s. uh, But people want to know what could they get to the 40s. We need to see intraday swings in the S&P down in the 2 and 3% ranges, not in the 5%, 6 7% ranges that we have been seeing all throughout uh, the month of March. So there's your one thing that I'm watching. By the way, I did talk to the inventor, the founder of the VIX, Robert Whaley. Uh, you can see my interview with him, CNBC.com. He has his opinions on what the volatility index is telling us. Take a look there,
2: TraderTalk.CNBC.com for more on that. Guys, back to you. All right. Very cool, Bob. Thank you. Uh, Bob Bassani, keep your eyes on fixed income and the dollar this morning as well. Let's
7: get to Rick Santelli. Morning, Rick. Good morning, Carl. You know, if you look at Friday, right towards the end of the session, we're around 68 and 10s, around 24 and 2s. So here we are about the same yield in 2s, but we're down about five extra basis points and 10s. Look at the two day chart. You see what I'm talking about. So here we sit. At 63, which puts us down a handful of basis points, and that handful of basis points has directly impacted the yield curve. So we see we're now under 40 in 10s minus 2s. You know, it wasn't that many sessions ago. We were uh, at 53, 54, 55. So you can see most of the big action on the higher price lower yield is in long maturities. Let's look at a month to date of 10s, and what should jump out at you is, you know, we are under 10 basis points away from 54 and 54 from the 9th of march as you see that low on the chart that's the lowest close ever look at a two day of boons they're down about six basis points at minus 57 on the 9th of march their all time low close was minus 86 about 30 basis points there the dollar the dollar really has been so volatile. It was trading at 98 handle. Now we've zoomed back over 99, as you see on this two day chart. We're up about 7 eighths of a cent. And what's important here about the dollar index is it gives us a great barometer. You know, once again, we're seeing a little bit of a global uh, nervousness that is reflected in the demand for dollars. It's highly correlated with the higher temperature across the globe. And while all this is going on and yields in the long end are going down, we are. We can't print some of these investment-grade corporate securities fast enough. Huge appetite. We're going to continue to monitor at CNBC the historic amounts and finally on a month-to-date of the dollar index. Just consider, on the 9th we're under 95. On the 10th, uh, all the way up to the 20th, we're zooming for the highs at 102.81. If you're looking for volatility, whether it's the pound versus the dollar or the dollar index, foreign exchange is the place. David, back to you.
3: Rick, thank you. Rick Santelli with the Bond Report, of course. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We're also going to have David Ricks, the uh, CEO of Eli Lilly, joining us in the next hour. Stay with us.
4: The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
7: At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need.
4: Is there anything you can't do?
7: Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. Ahem. The UPS... nope.
2: Stocks uh, uncharacteristically stable this morning. Uh, Dow is up 250, down 100, currently up 50, as Boeing is really the swing factor today. Still to come, do not miss the CEO of Eli Lilly on the race for a COVID-19 treatment. We will take a quick commercial break, so stay
1: with us. Let's get to Jim and stop trading. I've got to tell you something, Carl. Uh, Gordon Haskett, John Inch, he's been, uh, this time it's uh, a, th- 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 let's just put it this way. There's a negative piece today by John about 3M. And what I find this is so disconcerting, he takes it from hold to sell. GM is a dividend risk credit. They have 61 years of increased dividend. He is saying, given the fact that there's overhead, given the fact that there are issues involving p- uh, pollution, involving groundwater, he says this could place 3M's dividend at risk. We see in Germany the government saying, listen, maybe we shouldn't have dividends in our companies. Uh, a lot of people own 3M for the dividend, Carl. And I think we've got to be conscious, a little more conscious of why people own stocks. Fixed income is hard to come by, stocks are a way to get yield. And right now, he, uh, John Inch is saying that yields in danger. So just be careful if you're buying stocks, betting on getting a good dividend, because maybe that dividend's at risk.
2: Huh. But you mean, uh, but episodically, you don't think we're going to import an idea like Germany's?
1: No, uh, that would be hard to believe. That's so socialistic. Uh, yeah. But I do think that the, after we uh, cancel buybacks, people are going to say, for some companies that took money, well, are dividends at risk? And I say, no, dividends aren't risk but from the government. They're at risk economically. And you have to look at each company that you own and decide that that dividend is safe. If it is outsized, they're between 8 and 10%. Uh, versus, say, 3, 4, then you may have something wrong at the company. If you can't figure it out, then you should not maybe own it because this is a question of cash flow. And cash flows are going down for almost every company I follow.
3: Yeah, that's the key, I think, isn't it, Jim? He says if EBITDA were to, were to decline 15%, below their current projections. Right. And by the way, they're also adding in what they think is the PFAS liability to some right. extent. Then you get to a debt-to-EBITDA uh, 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 ratio of almost five times, right. um, which is not good, which goes back to leverage overall and right. those companies that have more debt perhaps they thought it was fine. They thought their balance sheet was optimized. But, in fact, in this period, it becomes a very different story, which leads me, guys, to Boeing, which is worth mentioning. Sure. The S&P is up almost three-quarters of a percent, but Boeing is what's weighing on the down. While that's flat, it's down over 10 percent this morning.
1: Boeing doubled between a Monday, a really pressure upgrade by Goldman, uh, and Friday. And yet nothing really that great happened at Boeing, given the fact that the bill – that passed Congress wasn't a bailout for Boeing. There was a lot of misperception that it was. It just wasn't. Strange. Very strange action. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street.
4: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.